Mark Cuban. How you do anything is how you do everything. If you're not, if you don't pay attention to detail on the little things, you're not going to be in the habit of paying attention to detail for the big things. Ken Griffey Jr. Hey, he wears his hat backwards. Well, I wear my hat backwards because my dad had a fro and I wanted to wear his hat. And if I put his hat on at age six and, you know, he's got a eight and a half and I got like a little five, it's not going to really stay on my head. Jeannie Buss. Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. It's good to see everybody. John Smoltz. Is if you don't have the imagination and the willingness to fail or not being afraid to fail, I don't think you can be truly great. Candace Parker. I have had so much hope for this generation coming up that have grown up with women in sports, in leadership roles, on television, speaking about sports, speaking knowledgeably about sports. Pau Gasol. To me, all the work that I've done, all the humanitarian work that I've done has always given me great perspective, has allowed me to keep my feet on the ground and uh, has really put and reminded me what's truly important. Damian Lillard. That was for Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) Just to name a few. Welcome to Sports Business Radio. Now, here's Brian Berger. Well, thanks for joining us on this edition of Sports Business Radio. Hope you're doing well. It's powered by Malka Sports. M-A-L-K-A Sports.com. M-A-L-K-A Sports.com. Some great guests on the show this week. Two of them for you this week. Scott Reams. He's been a longtime friend of mine. You may know if you've listened to this podcast for a while that I did some consulting for Nike for a number of years. I got to meet Scott Reams there. He's Nike's historian emeritus. So Nike had never had a corporate historian, and he was the first person to have that job. He retired after almost 30 years at Nike last October. And boy, he has a wealth of knowledge about Nike, the company. Uh, He helped Phil Knight write his memoir, Shoe Dog. Um, Talk about someone who knows where all the artifacts are. And then we discuss, and I'd always wanted to discuss this with him, who's on Nike's Mount Rushmore? Who are the four most important athletes in the history of Nike? Nike's turning 50, if you can believe that, uh, later this year. So Scott Reams, Nike historian emeritus. Our conversation's almost an hour. If you're a fan of Nike or just interested in their company and the culture, um, you're going to enjoy this conversation. Also joining me on Sports Business Radio this week, Keith Cosrow, NFL Films Senior Coordinating Producer. He's been working on the first edition of Hard Knocks in season on HBO with the Indianapolis Colts. And he's got some great insight. What are the differences for Hard Knocks preseason like we've become accustomed to versus in season? Boy, the Colts had an abrupt ending to their season, losing to Jacksonville on the last Sunday of the NFL season. There's going to be some added drama to the season finale of Hard Knocks with the Colts uh, tomorrow night, Wednesday night on HBO. So we'll talk about that. I'm joined by executive producer Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you? I'm doing good. And like you said, this is a fun show. And anytime you can get behind the scenes of a Nike exec that's been there 30 years with Scott, man, the stories and just all the stuff he knows and uh, the memorabilia and, and the stuff he talks about, good interview there. And then I love NFL films, you and I both do. So that's always fun to dig into what they're doing. And uh, Hard Knocks is such a fun show. It's good to hear how they make it and kind of what they do with it. All right, let's get to some NFL headlines. Headline number one, you know, the 
finale of the regular season brings the playoffs, but it also brings pink slips for NFL coaches. And the Chicago Bears, the Jacksonville Jaguars, the Las Vegas Raiders, the Minnesota Vikings, these are some of the teams that now have openings for head coaching jobs. We're already hearing some of the names that could be candidates for those jobs. But Griggs, uh, Monday, bloody Monday for some of the coaches in the NFL. And it doesn't just impact the coaches. It's the assistant coaches. It's the families. It's the equipment and training staff sometimes. Because when you bring in a new coach, sometimes they want to bring in their own people. And it's a total turnover of the organization. We saw some GMs let go, like Ryan Pace of the uh, Chicago Bears. So sometimes it's like, hey, we're going to clean house with the GM position and the head coaching position. Um, And then some surprises. I wasn't very surprised, but some people were surprised that, you know, Pete Carroll didn't part ways with the Seahawks and John Schneider's still there. Um, I still think if you look at the last two games of the season for the Seahawks with Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll, they still have that fire and they played really well. You know, maybe you see how they do with a a healthy season um, next year, but The grass isn't always greener on the other side when you decide to make a head coaching change. The other shocker was the Miami Dolphins. Brian Flores was let go. He was 8-1 and in his last nine games of the season, really turned their season around. His starting quarterback, Tua, you know, is hurt a lot. I don't know how you get rid of Brian Flores. And in my mind, of all the coaching candidates that are out there, he's number one on the list. If I'm anyone who has an opening, I'm bringing Brian Flores in for an interview. 100%. I was shocked just like you. Like Miami, what a turnaround that season, especially with a quarterback that's hurt every other minute. Man, I was shocked that they, you know, lost the first half the season and then come back and basically won out the rest of the season. I I was shocked by that one too. But, you know, it's the joys and ups and downs of coaching in professional sports, right? You just never know year to year, really, if you're going to have a job. But the good thing is a lot of these guys seem to rebound. They'll get hired somewhere else and they keep the flow going. But uh, yeah, not a fun day for a lot of coaches in the NFL. All right. NFL playoffs are getting underway. Um, The two number one seeds have a bye. So it's Tennessee and it's Green Bay. They get the buys over uh, Wild Card Weekend. Everyone else has games. Griggs, who do you like for the Super Bowl? Who's going to get through all the way? Well, we were talking about how fun it'd be to have a Belichick and Brady reunion. So um, I still think Tampa Bay is looking good. I don't know if if Mac Jones and and the crew over with Belichick can go all the way. So uh, Green Bay looks good. I think... uh, I think Green Bay is going to be the Super Bowl, and I just don't. It's just kind of all over the place everywhere else. I just don't know. Green Bay is kind of my standout, and then it's like, I don't know. I don't even know who to say. What are you thinking? So I think Green Bay, Tampa Bay have a rematch of the NFC Championship in Lambeau. And, you know, again, Green Bay has got to win one game to get to that NFC Championship. That's a toss-up. I mean, Brady going into Lambeau and winning two years in a row, that's a tall order, even for someone who's won seven Super Bowls like Tom Brady. And I just feel like... Aaron Rodgers and the Packers are better this year. They learned from last year. So I'm probably going to go with Green Bay, which is, you know, not not really going out on a limb because they're the, you know, the home favorite through the NFC playoffs. And then I got to go Kansas City. So it's going to be a State Farm Super Bowl with Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers getting all the way through. I think a lot of people expected that last year. They were the two number one seeds last year. I'm not buying Tennessee. Um, I think. You know, Derrick Henry's coming back and they could be really good, but I I just like Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs who have been to the last two Super Bowls. But I do think there's a lot of parity, especially in the AFC. 
And, you know, you look at Tennessee as the number one seed in the AFC. If they went out in round one or, you know, their, their first game round two, I wouldn't be surprised. I just don't think they're that typical number one seed where you're like, okay, you know, someone's going to have to play an amazing game and go into Tennessee and beat them. I think they're pretty beatable as the number one seed. Yeah, I think that's kind of a shocking thing, too. I, when they slipped in here through the last weekend, I'm like, wow, that's a number one seed. I just haven't really had them on the radar, especially since Henry's been out for half the season. Uh, but you never know. But I don't think they have the powerhouse either. That's a good call on the State Farm uh, Super Bowl. I think that'd be great for marketing, too. Obviously, big markets and big stars. So the Super Bowl crew would love that. All right. I want your dark horses in each conference the nfc and the afc give me your dark horses we just said who we think will get there but give me a dark horse because i've got my two okay so my dark horses i think cincinnati's gonna get get in there somehow i don't know how but i think cincy first i love their helmets so i, I gotta go with the helmets and their looks so Bengals are gonna get in there and i think dak and the cowboys have a good chance of uh, rolling through a couple rounds so those are my two okay so you've got cincinnati and dallas my dark horse in the afc it's not a huge dark horse. They are the number three seed, I think. But Buffalo, I think Buffalo's really good. Josh Allen's really good. I think they can beat anyone on any given Sunday, as they say. So I'm going to go Buffalo and the AFC if it's not Kansas City. And then in the NFC, are you sitting down for this one? <laughs> the team that barely got in, the San Francisco 49ers. I think they can beat Dallas in Dallas. And I think they have all the talent in the world. So um, I'm going to go with Buffalo and San Francisco as my two dark horse candidates. But I still am going Green Bay, Kansas City with my my number one picks there. But I would watch out for Buffalo and San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, this is the NFL. This is what makes it fun. This time of year, the wild card games. And really, like you said, any given Sunday, anybody can win. These are NFL teams. They know how to play. They've been here before. So it's a great weekend. I love wild card weekend and the playoffs are great. By the way, craziest game of the NFL season, one of the crazier ones you'll ever watch was that finale with the Raiders and the Chargers, uh, 35-32. If the Raiders just run out the clock and it ends in a tie, it's one of the all-time great stories and the Steelers don't get in. But because the Raiders won, the Steelers get in. So what a crazy game to end the season, Griggs. Yeah, it's always fun, that Sunday night game. I was looking forward to it. I mean, I'm an Oregon guy, so Justin Herbert. I mean, I was looking forward to that just because he's been so fascinating in the NFL to watch. But yeah, great game. It would have been awesome if it came down to a tie. That would have been so funny. But uh, fun way to end the regular season for sure. All right, our final headline, uh, college football playoff. Georgia beats Alabama. So, you know, Alabama destroyed Georgia in the SEC championship game. Georgia gets its revenge. They played a great game. It was a close game throughout until really, I would say, the last five minutes. And uh, Kirby Smart beats his mentor, Nick Saban. Nick Saban lost twice this year. He had never lost. He was 23-0 and against his assistants coming into this year. And he lost to Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. And he lost to Kirby Smart in the championship game. So now he's 20 what, 25 and two, I think, um, as a head coach against his assistant. So Georgia was a great team all year. Their defense is fast. Watching both of those defenses, you know, get after those quarterbacks. It was hard to be a quarterback for either Alabama or Georgia in those games. You were running for your life. 
Man, it was a fun game. I, it started kind of slow and a little bit sleepy, but it sure picked up, and it was just back and forth. And just like you said, man, the defenses are just beasts. They're so quick, forcing those quarterbacks out of the pocket to make mistakes and some great hits and just a fun game all the way throughout. I'm glad Georgia finally got their championship because they've been there so many times and haven't pulled through. So it was fun to see somebody else win it, even though it's an SEC-SEC battle. It was still fun to see Georgia come out. And how fun is Kirby on the sideline? He is so fun to watch. Yeah, he is fun to watch. 41 years it had been since Georgia won the college football title. It was great to see former head coach Vince Dooley there. He was the coach with Herschel Walker the last time Georgia won the title in 1980. So big, big doings in Georgia. They joined the Atlanta Braves as champions in Georgia. All right, before we get to our interviews, Griggs, I got to tell our audience about our new official menswear partner for Sports Business Radio, Roan. R-H-O-N-E. I absolutely love their product. Uh, I've been a fan of their company for a long time. They make the absolute highest quality, best fitting, and most comfortable performance-driven clothing for men. All right, what's in my closet from Roan right now? I'm going to tell you. They've got their commuter line. So if you're trying to look sharp for business meetings, but you don't want to put on the tie. So I've got, I'm actually wearing it right now. The commuter quarter inch zip pullover. Like if you watch the Mannings on the Manning cast, they always have those quarter inch zip pullovers and they look sharp. I love my commuter quarter inch zip pullover. It, it's literally standard procedure for me. If I'm doing zoom meetings or in-person meetings, I've got one of those on. Um, I've got the commuter pant. I've got the commuter shirt. They're breathable. Uh, if I sweat, it wicks away the sweat. It's a fresh modern take on clothing today for for business. It helps with my active lifestyle. All right, what else am I enjoying? The Bellinas Beach Poncho Hoodie. I love that. It's just formal enough, but just casual enough. Again, breathable. Uh, I wear it almost every day. Um, I've got the rain long sleeve and short sleeve shirts that keep me dry when I sweat for my Peloton workout. So if it's a little cooler, I've got the long sleeve. I've got it in blue. Uh, if I want to wear the short sleeve, I do that. Um, and then I've got those spar jogger pants. And as I said on last week's edition of the Sports Business Radio, I probably wear those things four days a week now. I just love the spar jogger pants. I had never worn jogger pants before. And I am a big believer in the Roan spar jogger pants. So here's the deal. Roan is offering Sports Business Radio podcast listeners 20% off of your purchase if you go to Roan.com. And again, that's R-H-O-N-E.com. And you enter the promo code SBR20. That's S-B-R-20 at checkout. You're going to receive 20% off your next purchase. That is a substantial discount for our audience. So I appreciate that from Roan. Again, go to Roan.com and enter the promo code SBR20 at checkout. All right, coming up next, Scott Reams, Nike historian emeritus. We're going to dig into the history and the heritage of one of the most fascinating companies of the last 50 years. They're celebrating 50 years coming up in a few months. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. My guest is Scott Reams, former employee at Nike historian emeritus, longtime friend. As some of you may know, I used to do some consulting for Nike, and Scott and I got to work pretty closely together. We've remained in touch over the years. 
I actually love when executives leave, leave Nike. Uh, Mike Nakajima, who was in sports marketing for tennis, Ralph Green oversaw football and basketball. They've joined me on Sports Business Radio. And when we can look back and reflect on their careers, it's a lot of fun, a lot of great stories. And I'm looking forward to that with Scott. Scott, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, first, congrats on a tremendous career. I mean, there's not many people that have the run that you had at Nike at the same company and get to do what you got to do. So uh, credit to you and congrats on a, on a great career and uh, your retirement now. Well, thank you. It was, uh, it was time. You know, I was ready. I was thought maybe I'd get to 30 years. I ended up uh, hanging it up at 29, but I enjoyed really the entire 29 years. I mean, there were really never, there were a couple of you know, little troughs. There were once in a while to you. That's just part of human nature and life. But uh, for the most part, it was, it was a tremendous run. So let's go back to the beginning. I mean, I'm interested in just some of the physical things. So when you first came to the Nike campus, it wasn't nearly what it is today. Now it's like a city in and of itself. You've got, you know, these Coach K and Serena Williams buildings that are, you know, just monstrosities. And, you know, it was a decent sized campus when you started back in uh, 1992. But Give us a lay of the land. Like, what was it like when you first stepped on campus back in 92? Sure. Yeah, I actually started, my first office was over in Murray 2, which is uh, off of Murray, not too far from where the old Kmart was. It's now been torn down. Uh, so that's that. I was actually there for three or four months because I was one of the groups that was moving into the brand new, at that time, Nolan Ryan building. So I had a chance to somewhat get a taste of the, the old pre-campus life and then was basically right into the campus life with the, with the opening of Nolan Ryan. So yeah, when I first started there, uh, it was seven buildings, I think, and about 800,000 square feet, which all of that by it together would fit into the new Serena Williams building. Holy which cow. Is mind-boggling. Yeah. So, I mean, how big is campus now? Like how many buildings and how many square feet do you think approximately? You know, I- I've never been able to get an actual number on that because it's, we, you know, we, Nike bought a lot of the, the buildings that were to the west of the original campus, like over heading towards 158th. Uh, you know, so it's, there's got to be 60 or 70 buildings, maybe even more, some that, others that were purchased. I just remember whenever I came to campus, it wasn't easy to find parking. <laughs> well, that hasn't changed. I mean, there are some two, two or three, uh, ginormous parking structures, but uh, for the most part, parking in general is always a challenge. Well, at least it was before the until the pandemic. Now it's pretty easy. And you were, I mean, you weren't one of the first employees, but you were there in the early years. Nike certainly wasn't the Nike that we know now yet. And, you know, I would say it was a cozy campus. So for those who haven't been to the Nike World Headquarters in Beaverton, Oregon, um, you know, it, it was Facebook and Google and those types of campuses before those campuses were ever even companies. And it's grown, as Scott just mentioned. But, you know, there was a restaurant on campus and there were some places to work out. And if you walked through the campus, you had these little, I would almost call them little mini Hall of Fame bus on some of the pillars. And they honored some of the great athletes that had been Nike athletes thus far uh, buildings are named after some of the elite Nike athletes that have ever been with Nike. Um, but boy, it sure has changed. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, the old days, we would all, again, be nestled in six or seven buildings all around basically half of a, a small man-made lake. And that was the extent of most of the Portland-based employees. There were still others in some satellite offices, but for the most part, Phil Knight and all the senior leadership, they were in buildings either one or two away from where everybody else was. And they would eat in the same cafeterias and you'd see them on campus. And it was really a uh, it was a much smaller world. I mean, it was it was really very easy to get to know people then. Uh, obviously, in the passage of time and the growth of the company, that's much more challenging now. But uh, the campus itself still remains at the heart of everything. The, we've now circled the lake and then grown grown out from it. But it's still uh, the campus. I mean, it's called a campus for a reason, right? I mean, it's not like that was an official title, but it was designed by Phil, with Phil Knight's uh, belief that a college campus is one of the most creative. Uh, places that a person spends his or her life. And so he wanted to build a place where that creativity, that that opportunity to run into people, the lack of streets, so you don't have to, you know, you, you can just essentially just be within that community without having to go out, was very much done on purpose. Okay, so there was a place on campus, you talk about creativity and coming up with new and innovative ideas. I think it was called the kitchen, the Nike kitchen. And wasn't Phil Knight's Winnebago in there or his vehicle that had the first waffle iron that made the first Nike shoes? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, there's uh, there's been a lot of different uh, innovation centers over the years. The kitchen is one. They, I, I joke that they seem to change their name every three or four years. They, <laughs> they want to move on to something else. But uh, yeah, there, there, there have been a number of, of, essentially the Sport Research Lab has always been the there since the Exeter days in New Hampshire in 1980. There's always been a research lab. It moved to the campus when the campus uh, opened. And so that's been somewhat the, the hub for design. But yeah, there's been Winnebago's, there's been other uh, cars and, and uh, things that have been drawn from Nike history that have been brought in to help the new and, and future designers and, and employees connect with the past. You know, So there's a, a continuity there. But yeah, the I, I honestly, I, it may still be called the kitchen. I, I kind of lost track. Well, and then you walk around and you see all these buildings, like I said, that are named after athletes, coaches who have deep ties mm-hmm. to Nike. And I can just remember, you know, being on campus and, oh my gosh, you run into Ken Griffey Jr. or Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods or Lance Armstrong or whoever. I mean, when you're on campus, you just never know who you're going to run into, who might be there for meetings, talking about their new and upcoming product or who might be wear testing something. Um, what are some of your favorite memories around people that you just ran into on campus or building unveilings or special events that were held on the campus? Well, I can remember the first interaction vividly because I was in the, the one of the sports uh, centers, uh, the Bo Jackson Fitness Center, and I was just, I think it was, I was either finished changing clothes or I was about to change clothes, and I was sitting on the on one of the long benches in the locker room, and this person was sitting next to me. You know, you, you don't look around in a locker room. It's kind of like, you know, uncool. So you, I'm just uh, getting, you know, doing my business, and, and this person starts to stand up and keeps going and going and going. And I was finally, I looked over, and I was like, oh, my God, this person is so tall. It was Buck Williams. Ah. He was out, I guess, working out for some reason at, at our campus instead of with the Blazers. But he was a very tall man. And that was uh, the first time I thought, oh, my gosh, there can literally be people like Buck Williams or any other athlete around almost any corner. And that happened. Probably my favorite story was I was in the, the John McEnroe building one day. And that's some of, that used to be one some of the hub 
uh, where the, the Phil Knight and some of the other senior executives, that's where their offices were at the time. This was back in the mid nineties. And I was at my desk and I heard this voice behind me kind of, you know, the, <clears throat> and so I, I turned around and I, you know, my eyes just got really wide and I said, excuse me, can I, can I help you? And he goes, yeah, I'm supposed to meet Bill Frechette, who's the head of baseball sports marketing, uh, but I can't find him and I can't reach him. This is long before cell phone ubiquity, right? So I said, well, hold on, let me make some phone calls. And I said, you want to have a seat or something like that? And he said, sure. And he sits down in my cube and he starts looking around. I have a bunch of St. Louis Cardinals stuff in my cube because I'm you know, born and raised in St. Louis. And uh, for the next 30 minutes, I had an amazing conversation with Tony Gwynn. Oh my and gosh. Wow. I just, he taught me some of his favorite restaurants in St. Louis and play, people that he played against and, you know, Ozzy Smith and blah. You know, I, and I was just like, I am sitting here in my office talking to Tony Gwynn. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the greatest hitter or one of the greatest hitters of all time. Absolutely. And one of the nicest guys I ever met, right? So I finally get a hold of the person he's supposed to meet and that there was a cross wires and he had gone to the airport to pick up Tony and Tony had gotten a ride in. So Bill says, can you stay with you for until I get back? And I said, sure. So as I said, we talked and talked and talked and then Bill showed up and I, you know, he says, great talking to you. And he took off. Right. And I'm thinking, wow, again, what a, what an amazing moment. So a few months later, one of my staff, again, I was in sports marketing at that time. One of my staff is down at spring training in Arizona and she calls me up and she said, I ran into Tony and he said to say hello. And I'm like, oh, right. Sure. He did. You know, and she said, no, I'm not kidding. And she gave me something to bring to you. And I was like, you're kidding me. So I'm, I'm on pins and needles and wait like two or three days till Christina gets back and she comes back and she's got a bat, a game, a game worn bat, you know, a bat that Tony had used, which he signed personalized to me and a ball. And she said, you know, Nike, you're never supposed to ask for autographs, never supposed to ask for memorabilia, but if an athlete offers it, you know, what can you do? So she shows up with the ball and the bat and says, Tony wanted you to have these. And I was like, oh my goodness. And so I've had them up in my man cave ever since. But, That's amazing. Uh, what, I mean, talk about something he absolutely did not need to right, do. It was right. Right. to get to know him and talk to him. So he was in my. He's been on my favorite list forever, and obviously his passing was you know, devastating. So anyway, it was one. Of, it was one of those moments where I was like, "Wow, you honestly, literally could have anyone walk into your room or around the corner and, and run into him." And that was one of my favorite stories. So I've had Ken Griffey Jr. on this show, and he's talked about the day that the Ken Griffey Jr. building was dedicated and he was taking batting practice off of high school pitchers and hitting bombs off the buildings at Nike. We know Tiger Woods was there for his building dedication and same thing, hitting bombs with driver. Is there a building dedication or is there someone that's come to campus, whether it's an athlete? I know former President Obama's been on campus. Is there someone that came to campus and you're like, that's a day I'll never forget? Oh, well, you named a couple of them. All of the building dedications of the second wave of the campus expansion from 99 through 2001. I was in PR at Nike at the time, so I was the one handling the, the press events for those. So I got a chance to be a little bit closer and involved in the, the most folks did. And I can remember, I mean, like, for example, Jerry Rice, he broke down. He actually got really um, uh, emotional. And we said, you know, are you okay? And he said, oh, this is just so much. And I said, but of all the things you've had in your career, MVP, Super Bowls, blah, 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 this is, this is, you know, you're getting this emotion about this. And he said, These, this is permanent. This is, you know, they can take other stuff away. People can forget. But this building will always be here. And he got very emotional about it, which was amazing. And quite frankly, every athlete that I did the PR for their building, I had that moment where they got choked up and got really emotional 
and it was amazing, you know, to just see the the human side of this. I mean, a lot of these folks, a lot of these athletes you uh, you revere. I mean, it's like Mia Hamm, Pete Sampras, you know, Tiger Woods. These are like the 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 top athletes in their professions, and to have them have that human moment where they're overcome by emotion about something like a, a building dedication is really uh, powerful. And and the buildings themselves are not just named for the athlete or the coach. The conference rooms, the I mean, the the, the theme throughout the entire building is uh, the name for their some of their coaches, their sisters, their brothers. I mean, any a uh, uh, particular golf course that I can Tiger liked. I mean, it was everything that that has some sort of connectivity to the athlete can, is usually folded into the building. So it is a very uh, powerful and emotional experience. But the day that I would say, if I had to choose an album, it would definitely be the Tiger Woods uh, building dedication. That was. That was just off the charts. I mean, at, at the time, so the frame of reference at the time, he has the Tiger Slam. This was uh, his dedication was in May of 2001. So he had it was the current holder of all four major uh, championships, and so he's the hottest, literally the hottest athlete on the planet. And he's coming to the Nike campus, and the whole day is about him and his family and dedicating the building. And we had, I'm not kidding, Brian. I, I, I mean, the number sort of grows, kind of like the fish grows every time you pull a fish. <laughs> right. It seemed to me like there were three to 5,000 employees and, and I think a lot of family members and probably who knows else uh, in the stands. And we had, we had brought uh, bleachers that went all the way down the gigantic uh, two soccer fields, the Ronaldo fields. They weren't named Ronaldo yet, but the, they, they went all the way down there. They were packed. The media were everywhere. We had media coming down from Seattle, up from San Francisco. ESPN was here. It was it was crazy. And Tiger is banked up, and Phil is banked up, and they're standing out on the the patio outside of the of the Tiger Woods building. And there's a replica of the 18th uh, uh, tee box from Pebble Beach, which said, Tiger says one of his favorite places in the world. So there's a replica there, and 317 yards diagonally across the soccer field on the other side of what would be later called the Lance Armstrong building and later would be not called the Lance Armstrong building. <laughs> right. Other story. Yeah. Um, there was a, 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 a small putting green. And so Tiger is basically, while Phil's needling him and, and you know, with thousands of people watching, media cameras all going, Phil's giving him a hard time. You know, don't wreck, don't, those windows are all $5,000. You know, I'm going to take it out of your pay. You know, they're, the two of them are just having this amazing conversation. And meanwhile, Tiger's cool as a cucumber, whacking 315, 312, 319 yard drives onto that green. It was it was incredible. And then you know, Phil basically said, "Well, can you hit this circle?" They they painted some circles on the grass. I think 100 yards, 150 or 200, whatever the distances were. And so Phil's her Tiger's grabbing a different club, and he says, "Okay, 150." Tiger goes, "Doot doot doot," and it hits like five or six, you know, within a few feet of that hole. 100, then 100, he grabs a different club. Doot doot doot. Now it was just. It was otherworldly. I mean, it was just amazing to watch all that and, and be a, just a, a handful of feet away from it and see this amazing performance. I'll, it'll stay with me forever. Yeah, I heard, you know, again, that was one of the greatest days in the history of Nike's campus. And so I do want to ask you something. You're not at Nike anymore. I'm not trying to get you in trouble. But like, okay, Lance Armstrong, you just mentioned, Joe Paterno. Um, there have been people who have had to have their names removed from the building. And I guess they didn't have to, but Nike made the decision to remove the name. Like, what's that conversation like when you have to go, well, it's been on the name of this. Cause isn't that kind of the danger? Like you name a building after someone, you just hope they're going to be, 
you know, great and mind their P's and Q's for the rest of time. But if they don't and there's scandal around them, then you got to take the name off the building. Well, and we that came up a number of times, especially after. So Lance, let me, let me get the chronology right here. So Lance's uh, building was de- defrocked, or if you want to, you know, he was was taken away first. And that was you know, we, Nike stood by him for quite some time, even uh, when there were increasing number of yeah. people were claiming that you know all, all the these things that were unfortunately turned out to be true. And he steadfastly denied it over and over and over again. He wasn't he wasn't doping. He wasn't doping. He wasn't doping. So when he came out in that interview and admitted that he actually had been doping, then the decision was made, as I recall, almost within hours, or, you know, within a day or so, that, that that would be the name would be stripped from the building because he cheated the sport. The difference between him and Tiger Woods, for example, was when Tiger had his unfortunate situation with uh, his ex-wife. Um, that was you know that was unfortunate he was certainly in the wrong to be cheating on on his wife but that was more about cheating within that was within his family it was not he wasn't cheating the sport if you, i mean that was sort of the the way it was explained to me why you know one person one athlete would have a building removed uh, from his uh, with his name removed and the other would not but it's got to be gut-wrenching i mean you know we're, you, at the day that the buildings are all dedicated it's amazing it's it's you know, everybody's in, in a big family hug, and then years later, when when uh, things have changed, then that, that's got to be a, an emotional decision. You didn't mention Alberto Salazar. Alberto Salazar's name has been removed from his. I program. did not know that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So, um, it's it's terrible. It's it's very. I mean, it's not it's not terrible in that it maybe isn't deserved. It's just it's just a terrible situation. You know, to to have uh, something like that be so drastic. But in some cases, again, you cheat the sport it's hard to hard to keep your name on a building. So like, do they rename the Lance Armstrong building, the Scott Reams building, or do they leave <laughs> it nameless? Like, what do they do? No. I, and I, we, we discussed that a while too, because you know, I kept thinking the Scott Reams building was an excellent. Name. Yeah, exactly. Uh, apparently you and I are the only two who felt that way. So no, the, the consensus was you, you can't rename it. That's almost like you get a used building, right? It's, so the Lance Armstrong, I think, is is now called the Nike Sports and Fitness Center, and the the well, we don't have daycare or child development anymore on the campus, but uh, the the Joe Paterno Center was just changed to like the West Child Development Center, the Nike Child Development. But basically, they're they're somewhat uh, neutral because it would be just weird to say formally the such and such now this building, you know. So I think that was the decision was not to, to recycle them. Yeah. All right. So. You are one of the few people who got up close and personal with Phil Knight. You knew him well. You pitched him on becoming a historian and and really looking into the DNA of the company. And you started that role in 2004. Give me the pitch to Phil. I think it's a great idea. And frankly, at 2004, I'm kind of shocked that there wasn't archives or a historian already on staff. And then, you know, I do want to talk to you about Shoe Dog. It's one of my favorite books I've ever read. And I know you had a role in, you know, helping gather some of the information for that book. But, you know, when's the first time you met Phil Knight? Like, when did you first meet him face to face? And and how did you get to know him? Because he's not an easy guy to get to know. He's pretty private. Well, that's a good question. I, I, I would guess, and I'm just trying to go back mentally through my career, when we would have first interacted. And I'm thinking it was probably in Atlanta at the Olympics. 
So ninety six, right? If the, yeah, so ninety six. If it wasn't then, it was soon after. I know I met him at or I saw him at the Nike Town New York opening, and that was uh, October thirty first or November first of ninety six. I know we. I know I talked to him there. Uh, so that was. I that's the that's the first I can recall. I, you know, frankly, I could have met him on campus earlier, just like in a when he's sitting in his little table at the at the Boston Deli because he used to eat lunch there every day. But anyway, that's and didn't they have a this table reserved for Phil Knight. So if Phil Knight walked in at any time, it was like, no, this is his table. Get out. <laughs> well, yeah, they were a little more genteel about that. But yeah, yes. that was what I loved about that's even before I got to know Phil, that was one of the things I, I really liked about him was that that was one of his few uh for whatever word vanities or whatever. I mean that he he isn't a guy that likes to have special treatment, but he did have his own table, his own his own uh uh booth in the Boston Deli. And he did have a parking spot that was pretty much the closest one to campus. But, you know, what are you going to do? Wait, hold on. Before we go on to other stuff, I have to gripe about this for a minute. So if you go to the Nike campus, there's all these different parking spots reserved for Nolan Ryan and, and, you know, all these athletes. And I used to say when I'd come onto campus, like, they're never here. Like, maybe they show up once a year. So you're taking up all these parking spots for, you know, these athletes that are never going to yeah. show up. Like, let's, let's, can I get to park in one of those spots if I can't find a spot anywhere else? So I always kind of was uh, perturbed about the, the Nike athlete or coach parking situation. Like Phil, I get, he should obviously have one and it's his company and he's on campus, but the athletes who are never on campus, like why do they have parking spots? Well, it's funny because people are make that mistake a lot. They don't; those they're not actually their athlete spots. They're just it's just like if if you're Mark Parker, right, our former CEO, or if you're any VP or higher, you get a you have a parking spot reserved for you. But rather than either chiseling that VP's name and putting it up, and that you now the cost of putting those up, taking those down, putting those up, taking those down as VPs come and go, um, they just basically assign you uh, Brandy Chastain. You know, so you park in Brandy Chastain spots. There's only one Brandy Chastain spot on the campus, and and that happens to go to whatever VP or whatever high level person. So it's not it really and associated with the athlete. If Brandy ever came to campus, I I don't know where she would park, um, but she was. It is not assigned to the athlete. Okay, so I'm going to come clean on something. Uh, there there were times where I came to campus, I couldn't find a parking spot, and I just parked in the athlete labeled spot because i was like this athlete there's no way they're going to be here today and now from what you're telling me is that was actually assigned to a vp who probably would have been there today so i could have been towed you, you could have well, i mean vps travel a lot there are a lot of vp spots that are empty a lot and that could have happened but no you you could have been towed or at least been uh, gotten a, a stern warning yeah that was back in the day i don't think my car was nice enough to be able to like tow they're <laughs> probably like ah but then they probably never believed that this car would be Brandy Chastain's or Randy Johnson's or, right. you know, right. wh whoever. All right. So let's go back to Phil Knight. You met him in okay. 96. Um, you built up this trust with him, obviously, to the point where you pitch him on being Nike's first historian. So how does that unfold? OK, well, yeah, that a lot of changed in, over the years because, I, you know, I've, I've had four distinct different, quote unquote, careers or or. or uh, uh, jobs within within Nike, and the first was in retail, doing the opening of Nike Town, New York, uh, Nike Town, Portland. Uh, pardon me, back up. The events I did for Nike Town, Portland, Chicago. I didn't open them, but I, I did the events and marketing for them. Then I moved to sports marketing. That's why I was in Atlanta for the Olympics. 
then I moved to public relations, and that's where I really got to work with Phil. Uh, in in uh, about early 2000s, they we created a, a new team called the Global Brand Communications, and I was one of I think two or three people to be moved into that role. And one of our assignments or one of our roles was to arrange media interviews and facilitate interviews for the senior level executives. And that was with business magazines and business publications, New York Times, Wall Street Journal as well, things like that. And Phil happened to be the person, one of the people I was assigned to me. So I would sit in and facilitate a lot of his interviews. And I would just notice as I, as we were, you know, as people, reporters are asking questions about our past and uh, things about the the swoosh and, and other other bits of and pieces of Nike uh, uh, culture and history, that the answer would change a little bit from time to time. Not nothing dramatic, but it would change. You know, the amount he paid for the swoosh in one interview was fifty dollars, and, and another uh, reporter he told thirty five. You know, on a different day, and th- little things like that. And I just remember at the time, kind of scratching my head, going, "Huh, that's interesting." And then I would hear other interviews with other executives, and there would be a little bit uh, discrepancies and inconsistencies as well. So that started me thinking about it, and but and then my my access to Phil certainly helped. But that started me thinking that we have an archive. To your question earlier, Nike's had an archive since the late '70s. Um, it's grown, especially as the company went public, and in the, in the '80s, when the campus opened in 1990, and then the Nike towns, there was a lot of need for for display pieces, and so there was a, a ramp up in terms of the stuff was being kept by the archive. But what they Nike never had before that was an historian, so somebody who knew and captured the stories behind the pieces, right? So this is a shoe, but this is who wore the shoe and where they wore it and why they wore it. And so well, here's what they thought about the shoe, et cetera, et cetera. And that was missing, or it was all anecdotal, just things that we picked up, you know, third hand. So my proposal to Phil was that Nike needed uh, somebody to capture the history and the and the stories and to corroborate them. <laughs> which turned out to be a bigger challenge than I thought. And not only corroborate, but also cross-reference and get more voices, right? So, for example, when the swoosh was chosen, there were four people involved. You know, we had, a lot, we had Jeff Johnson's recollection, but we didn't really have much of Carolyn Davidson's. She was the one that designed the swoosh. Jeff was employee number one. Bob Waddell was employee number four. And Phil, they were the four people in the room when the presentation was made. I got all four of them back together with cameras rolling. And we talked for about two hours about that day, the lead up, why they were all together, why they were the decisions. And that was something that I was told later, Carolyn, I think said, or maybe it was Bob, that they had, the four of them had never been in the same room again. Wow. Since that day in, in the spring of 1971, they had never all four been together until I got them all together. Uh, it was about 10 years ago. And I was blown away, right? But the stories we got, Brian, were so much more rich. They could—they were correcting each other in real time. You know, things that I could never have gotten if it was just me going with somebody's 40-year-old memory, right? I mean, they did their best to remember stuff, but there was a lot of stuff going on in the 60s and 70s. And, and just to sit back and, and repeat verbatim what happened was challenging. But when I got all four of them in the same studio... They were great. They they cajoled each other. They 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 challenged each other. Then they finally, I basically at one point said, "We're not leaving this room until you all come to a story that we can agree on." And they all laughed. But it happened, right? Over time, we kept honing in and honing in and honing in, and eventually we got some great stuff about the name Nike and where it came from, um, the swoosh and how it came about, and, and that whole period, seventy one, seventy two, is a is a monumentally important time period within Nike history. And then we were able to capture 
uh, the memories of the people that were there living it. So that was pretty cool. That's amazing. I got to meet Phil and work with him a little bit. I was handling media relations as a consultant back in the early, I think, 2000s, maybe it was the late 90s. It was the Nike anniversary project where they dedicated all of the refurbished basketball courts around the city of Portland. It was kind of Nike's gift to the city where Phil Knight was from and the city where, you know, they're headquartered, even though they're in Beaverton. And he would go to all these dedications and, you know, hey, here's a new basketball court and here's some basketballs. And, um, you know, he seemed like such a nice man. And, you know, certainly that Portland was important to his heritage and history and all of that good stuff. But other than that, I haven't really interacted with him. Obviously, he seems like a private person. He seems like someone, you know, you see him at Oregon Ducks games and, you know, around town, but he's wearing the black and he's got the sunglasses on. Is someone who has gotten to know him pretty well and and worked directly for him. Tell us something about Phil Knight that we may not know. You know, something surprising that you'd go, wow, I never knew Phil liked that or did that or acted like that. Well, he, this is funny because I remember the day I, I was working with, uh, oh, it was, uh, there was a photographer uh, was working on a book. I think it might have been Brian Lanker. And they were work, he was working on a book and they were getting together a bunch of former Oregon uh, track athletes. It was, I can't remember it was about Hayward Field specifically. I think it might have been. Anyway, I'm, I'm, there's a bunch of people coming. They're doing it in several waves, and it's it's people that ran in Phil's era and more recent, and and women and men, you know, just a bunch of people. It's a huge logistical challenge, right? So, the day that it was Phil's turn with the, like I think they did like in one fourth group each, so there was like eight to ten people in each group. Phil was going to be there, and Ashton Eaton was going to be there. Uh, and so Ashton, again, I don't remember the year, but he was pretty young. I think he had won his first gold medal. Uh, and so I went to pick him or went to meet him. And I, he and his mom had gone, I think, to a slightly wrong, not wrong, but not the place they're supposed to go to. So I had to, I had to meet them and walk them back to where the shoot was taking place. It was, uh, it was a studio on the campus where it was being taken place. And I'm talking with Ashton and his mom. And he's asking me a ton of questions. I guess he had never met Phil yet. And he said, you know, what's he like? You know, I don't even know what to say to him. And I said, Ashton, I can guarantee you, he will be more excited to meet you <laughs> than you are to meet him. And he goes, what? No, the guy knows everybody about And I said, you just mark my words. When you get in there, his eyes are going to light up. He's going to be so excited to meet you. And that's exactly what happened. Because hmm. Ashton kind of even looked at me a little bit later, like a little, like a nod, like you were right. And I, and I think that's what, because everybody focuses on Phil the billionaire and Phil the you know, this and that and the other thing. He is just a basically a kid in in a world where he can hang out with athletes who he absolutely finds the most fascinating in the world. And he is just starstruck in some ways. Even though you think, how could he be, right? He he knows Michael Jordan. He he, he can call John McEnroe and you know, I mean he can do anything he wants, you know, and and but he was still giddy about meeting Ashton. And I just, that was what I love. And I do, still love about Phil that he has that, that ch- almost, I don't say childlike, but it's, it's just so fresh and, and exciting to see him interact with, uh, especially young uh, up and coming uh, athletes that, uh, that I think him, uh, that he loves that embody Nike. I think he really connects with them. So it was, that's one of the things that I, I've always taken away from my my little whatever I get to see behind the scenes with Phil. So it's interesting you mentioned that because when I read Shoe Dog, it was one of those books where I'm like, 
I feel like I can really hear Phil's voice describing this book. Like some books you read and you're like, that's not really how they talk or that's not their words or you're trying to hear their voice in your head and nah, I'm not really buying it. But with Phil, I really felt in Shoe Dog like he's talking to me, like he's telling this story. And he did come across as excited and kind of childlike and, you know, obviously someone who had to take risks in his business and, you know, make big bets and, and they ended up paying off. But, uh, you know, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, whether you see him on a sideline at a game or like you said, he's with Tiger Woods at a building dedication or he's just meeting an athlete on campus. Um, he does seem at his core where he's just excited to work around sports and, you know, work with these amazing athletes and, you know, have them wearing his brand that he created. Mm-hmm. Yes. He, it's, he's never taken it for granted. I, I think that's why the 1977 print ad that Nike created, there is no finish line. I think he takes that to heart. I think a lot of Nike do even more so than just do it. I think there's a, a, a mantra there of there is no finish line. You can always do a little bit better. You know, what you did was great, but next time, couldn't you shave a second off here? Couldn't you jump a little higher? You know, and, and that, whether I don't know if that it plagues Nike folks or it challenges us because sometimes you'd be like, gosh, we, how come we can't ever just sit back and enjoy and celebrate? But And we would, but it was like really short-lived because then they'd be like, okay, guys, there's no finish line. What can we do next? And I think Phil absolutely um, embodies that. And so it, it becomes contagious. When I picture the Nike historical archives in my head, I, I remember the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark and the ending scene where they bring in the artifacts and it's this huge building and it's just endless and there's all these artifacts. Give us a description of the Nike historical building or is there not even a building? Is it all just digital now? I mean, you mentioned like there's shoes and there's product and you know, here's things from the early days. Like where do they keep all this stuff? They keep it in an undisclosed location. Ah, okay, I guess I... <laughs> it's, in, it's in your garage, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, that's right. My insurance <laughs> would be off the charts. No, it's... I mean, to your question about digital, that is absolutely one of the things that we have been working on for the past few years to make it accessible. Even if even if the, the building were able to be accessed by uh, or accessed by employees on a regular basis, which it isn't, it isn't because... Again, for logistics reasons, security reasons, you usually have to make an appointment. Again, not in the COVID or in the pre-COVID world, you have to make an appointment to come over and see it, even if you're an IKEA employee, because we we just can't have you know hundreds of people coming and going all day long. Um, but the the vast majority of Nike employees don't live in the Portland area, so we have been working uh, for the past several years to photograph, scan, you know. Uh, so it's not just it's not just shoes and, and apparel and, and pieces of uh, equipment. It's artists or uh, designers' drawings of various stages of shoes. Uh, current designers love that. Um, it's prototypes. So again, mid mid stages of a shoe that what it never came to light, but here's what it was like in its ideation process. All of those are, are photographed and uh, and scanned as appropriate, and then are published on an internal. Um, internet site that my team, well, my old team, uh, would would publish to, so that they are accessible. If you can't get to Beaverton, you can uh, view all of the LeBron shoes. You can you can see the uh, every every uh, uh, Jordan shoe and, and in different angles and in different colorways, etc. So 
we, that was one of our, our, and continues to be one of the main objectives of, of DNA Department of Nike Archives to um, to make these accessible to the entire Nike uh, world. As as of now, there is no external Nike uh, museum. There's no uh, there's nothing that's been uh, greenlighted as far as I'm aware that would be a place that the general public can go, which is unfortunate. I was always wishing we could get that done. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why that's challenging from rights issues and permissions and it's just a, it's just a big hairball which i'd love to see them solve but it didn't happen while i was there my my time ran out before that made uh, made it any further so I'm, i cross my fingers that maybe someday there will be a, a nike museum or nike experience of some kind and they, they'll let me have a you know friends and family discount <laughs> all right i'm going to take phil knight and bill bowerman out of the equation here because okay. we know how important they were to the the founding and the history of nike I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this question because I want your like just raw reaction. And I actually hate this question, but I'm oh, going to, no, but I'm going to ask it. Who are the four athletes on the Mount Rushmore of Nike? The four. Well, you, you have, Steve Prefontaine has to take. I would agree. Uh, not only chronologically, because he was pretty much the first, although a little trivia, Eli Nastasi was actually the very first athlete to be signed to a contract to wear a Nike shoe. So there you go. That, you win some money at a bar. And for you uh, young folks out there, he was a tennis yeah. player. I'm sorry? I said for the young folks out there who don't know who Nastasi was, he was a tennis player. That's correct. He was a Romanian, or still is a, a, a tennis player, although I don't think he plays that much anymore. But yes, he was the very first athlete signed uh, to a Nike contract back in, uh, in 1972 into 73. It's a little vague as to when it actually was signed, but that's uh, he was the first. Okay, so, so Prevontaine is one. Who, who who are the other three? Uh, well, again, Jordan, I think you, you can't possibly do a, a... I mean, Jordan became his own brand, for crying any sakes, right? I mean, he, he's beyond anything else. So um, from, from just a pure soul and fire and... Um, I mean, essentially, Phil has called Steve Prefontaine the soul of Nike, right? So, so you've got the soul. You've got Michael as the as just the the, the pinnacle of success on the court, off the court, the brand, the legs of the brand. I mean, my gosh, he when was the last time he played? Two thousand two, I think. Um, you know, and the brand is is just still going gangbusters twenty years later. A lot of people thought once he retired that that was going to be. You know, the it, it would, it would just sort of peter out and, and that would be it. And that's been completely untrue. So the first two are pretty easy. The second two, again, you can, for Tiger almost has to take a slot for that same reason um, for doing the golf, you know, what, what Michael did to, to basketball and, and Tiger just becoming, I mean, just much what must watch TV. Right. I mean, that's, that's a literal, that's not just a hyperbole. That's literal, right. The ratings for, Golf tournaments the Tiger played in went up dramatically on TV. The the purses, the uh, the money that's paid for the, the tournaments now, went up dramatically because of, of Tiger. So if in terms of his impact on the sport and on Nike, I guess I would slot him in as the third. So the fourth is going to be challenging. You know, I have a personal favorite like with Joni Benoit, but she you know, she was so critical in the early days, and she's just a wonderful lady. But in terms of overall impact. I would maybe lean towards Serena. Um, I don't know. I, 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 this is, and you're, it's funny you should ask this because 
this was one of my biggest challenges for years. I would always be asked, what are the three greatest Nike innovations? What are the two greatest? What are the five greatest? What are the, you know, whatever. And, and I was really struggling with that because that's my opinion, right? What is shocks greater than Nike free? Is free greater than Presto? Is air greater than them all? And by what yardstick? By sales? By uh, cushioning? You know, by comfort? And so I, I would try to, whenever I could, to deflect on these and try to quote other people. Like I get a Mark Parker or I get a Tinker Hatfield or, or somebody um, who has way more knowledge about the, the, the greatest design innovations and, and product than, than I did. But I, I mean, they're fun. It's a great, it's a great argument starter <laughs> to, to try to figure out who would be the top four or five, six of, of whatever. But that's my four. Do you have a... I agree with your first three. I think Prefontaine, I think Jordan and Tiger. The fourth one is hard. And, and you know, Serena's certainly on the list. Um, I've always been a big John McEnroe believer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he did those posters. Like, when he came on the scene and he was wearing Nikes and he was doing the posters and things like that. And I just think... Like if I think of the two athletes that embody the characteristics of Nike better than any other athletes, at least from the the men perspective, it's Prefontaine and it's McEnroe. Yeah, that's a fair that's a fair observation. I mean, uh, again, this is this is why it's so hard to find because their their roles that they play, especially I guess the timing, McEnroe and the and we signed him in '78, right? And tennis was certainly not non-existent i mean you had borg and chrissy everett and jimmy connors and those guys but it wasn't really the it wasn't really the center of gravity like it became obviously macro then you know was joined by agassi and sampras and some of the magic that nike did with them in the 80s into the 90s was you know just purely amazing right and so you could say i guess you could say that mac was uh the headwaters for that and and certainly from the attitude the, you know, the whole you cannot be serious, the rackets. I mean, he, I mean, we, one of my favorite posters is very simple. It just says, you know, Nike shoes, McEnroe swears by them. I just think that's hilarious, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. But I don't know. I, I Like I said, I, I, I have a hard time picking. It's like, you know, picking your favorite children, you know, because they're, they're all, yeah, each has a, an impact. And, you know, Serena's impact may not be even be yet known. So, right. Yeah, I think that's TBD. That's why I think she's she's probably the leader for the fourth spot. Uh, but I think in the conversation, you know, you've got McEnroe. Some people would put LeBron in the conversation. Uh, oh yeah, you know you've got so in in my studio here, hanging courtesy of my good friend, our good friend Mike Nakajima. He gave me a wonderful gift recently, and it is one of two that exist in the world, and it is a signed picture. They look like Marvel superheroes, but it's it's really them. Serena, Maria Sharapova, who was a recent guest on this show, Roger Federer, and Rafael Nadal. You talk about four of the greatest tennis players ever, and it's signed, like not, you know, digitally signed. It's really signed by them. And you put those four in the same picture with those autographs. I'm not a big you know, uh, raw, raw guy when it comes to memorabilia, but that's pretty special. No question. And you, they've got one of two huh, in the world. That's what I'm told. So, you know, anytime, uh, you have one of those and it's that rare, that's, that's pretty 
cool to have that. He's, you know, it's like your Tony Gwynn bat that you described earlier. You know, again, I'm not a big memorabilia person. Frankly, like my autographs are these conversations that I do on this show for 18 years. Like I'd much rather talk to a, a wonderful person and have an in-depth conversation with them than, you know, take a picture with them or get their autograph, I think. Oh, and absolutely. And I, I fully, And again, not just because it's Nike policy not to ask, but I, I've had, I mean, Peekaboo Street has come to campus a number of times and we've just hit it off. We have a good, we have someone mm-hmm. posting out. I don't know what, but every time she comes, the two of us just get in the gab fest and it's so great. I don't, I've never, I'm not going to say, oh, would you sign this uh, napkin for me? You know, I, I know I got to meet Peekaboo and I know we connect. I don't really need to have a proof of it up on my wall. Yeah, no. So, okay. So that's a, that's a good, uh, you know, we could ask anyone in our audience who's on your, your Mount Rushmore of Nike athletes. So. You know, again, I think you and I agree on the first three. Prefontaine, MJ, Tiger, and then fill in the fourth. So I'd be interested in hearing from our listeners at SB Radio, who's on your Mount Rushmore of Nike athletes? Because there are some amazing athletes, obviously coaches. You know, we could go on for hours about the history of, of Nike. But when it came time to write Shoe Dog, and, and Phil Knight says to you, hey, I'm writing a book. How does that conversation happen between the two of you? What did you help with with the book? Because I imagine there's a lot of history. And like you said earlier, you got to brush off the cobwebs a little bit and figure out like what really happened with this as he's getting ready to write this book. Oh, yeah. The cobwebs were a major challenge. So (laughs) I can tell you, I mean, as a company historian, when your co-founder calls and says, I'm about to write my memoir, it it, it sticks with you, right? So because I had been after him for years. When are you going to write a book? When are you going to write a book? Ah, you know, he, just, he kept putting it off, putting it off. So when he, he called me, it was in November of 2012. He called me, I was in my desk over in the archives and he said, you're at your desk. And I said, yes. And that's why I answered the phone. And he goes, I'll be right over. And I thought, okay. So I hung up the phone. I talked to my staff. They're all sitting around. I said, Phil's on his way over here. Oh, really? What's for it? I'm like, I don't know. It was definitely unusual for him to do that mm-hmm. so he comes uh taps on the back door because even he can't get into our building because we've got you know high security uh, so I, I meet him there and he says can we go find some place to sit and i just somehow sensed he didn't want to sit at my desk with all my staff around so i said sure and i found that we have a tiny little conference and we went in there and he said well i finally decided i'm going to write my, my memoir or you might have said autobiography i can't remember if he decided at that point if it was going to be one or the other and i, I found out there were subtle differences between the two anyway he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write my autobiography and I'm going to, or memoir, and I'm going to need uh, you to help me uh, to locate uh, some old uh, letters, correspondence, things from the 60s uh, into the 70s. And I think he at that point told me, I, I'm probably just going to focus on the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and, or 80 and stop there when the company goes public. And I said, okay, well, actually, I have quite a bit of things that we've uncovered. Cause that, was, that was my area of expertise. I had a staff that... I would then ask I, uh, them specialize in basketball and other things because that's just such a, a a deep sport that I had to basically parse it parcel it out so that they could become experts. And then I basically my expertise was our, our early blue ribbon sports days, the '70s and the '80s. So I I felt like well great I've come to the right place. So I told them I said well I've got um, I've got a, a, a essentially a timeline that I created from scratch when I first started this job because the existing timelines that I was seeing were full of mistakes and it was really frustrating. So I said, I'm going to start my own. There's nothing going to go in this timeline unless I have confirmed it from multiple sources. 
And so I had done it just in a Word document, just like a two or three lines per entry. And I printed out for him. And at that time, I think there's like 56 or 60 pages of it. And he's leafing through it. He goes, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. This is great. This is great. This will, this will be like the, the backbone or the outline for the, to help me get everything in the right order. He goes, yeah, I remember this. And, it, and so it was, it was very gratifying for me because you could tell that it was, it was helping the, the, his wheels turn a little bit faster. Uh, and then he said, what else do you have? And I said, I've got, I've got the original catalogs. I've got correspondence between you and Jeff Johnson uh, from the 60s. I've got, and I said, I didn't say you name it. I've got it. I basically said, you, you tell me what you need and I will either find it or tell you what we have. So he thanked me and he took off with the stuff I'd given him. And I just about floated for the rest of the day. <laughs> uh, but, the, oh, but the other thing he said was, don't tell anybody about this. So I didn't tell my boss. I didn't tell my staff. I didn't tell my wife. I didn't tell anybody about this for probably a year and a half or two years uh, that I was doing this research and, and sending stuff to Phil. And I was sending it through Lisa McKillop's admin and, you know, sending it to you know, wherever he needed to have it be sent. And it was amazing because I was getting, he was giving me feedback, you know, so I was talking to him a lot and I was able to ask some questions. You know, I could get some time with Phil from time to time, but he's still a very busy man. So even, you know, even when I did have time with him just to do interviews, it was all you know, very metered. I've got 30 minutes. I got to go, you know, go, go, go. And so I would, this time I was like, I, I, all the time, really not in the world, but a lot of time to ask him some more questions and under the pretense of helping him, but it also was helping me. So once the first uh, draft was ready to be edited, he asked me, Jeff Johnson, and I think a handful of others to, to be the unofficial editors. I mean, the, the publisher obviously had their own editors, but he asked us to edit that. And so we went through and we edited I gave him much feedback and, and it was great. I mean, I'm just like going back and forth with him uh, on some, a few, a few different points where uh, our memories differed, or actually let me put it more accurately. His memory differed from what actually happened <laughs> because I had actually researched it. Right. So I had, I had talked to several people. So I wasn't to me, it wasn't a memory. It was actually stuff that I had nailed down and he challenged me on a couple of them and, and said, that's not how I remember it. And so we talked about it. And I said, well, I think you might be conflating this and that. And you're thinking of this. And several times he said, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. A couple of times he disagreed. Uh, you know, and then he ultimately pointed out that his name was on the book and his name was on my paycheck. So I said, <laughs> you, you, you win both of those arguments. So uh, <laughs> there are a couple of things in Shoe Dog that I, I kind of go, ah, I don't know. Still not sure that's exactly how it happened, but it's minor. And so it was just this amazing opportunity for me to essentially tell a person that what they remembered isn't actually what happened, you know, that, but I, and he actually gave me some crap and he goes, why are you being so insistent about this? Does it really matter? And I said, so I'm Nike's historian, right? So I have this one chance, whatever you write in this book will become canon, right? It'll be the gospel. It'll be your words about what happened. So it's up to me to make sure that you're remembering it correctly and in the, in the right order. And, because that's otherwise I'll never be able to argue with it. Because people say, "Well, I saw it read in Shoe Dog and said that." So I told him that's why I'm being so tenacious about that. And he, he just smiled. He goes, "I don't blame you." And he goes, "This is your one shot." And so I took it very seriously. I mean, that's such an important job, Scott. Because if you think about the past fifty years of corporate America, or actually just corporate world in general, Nike is one of the most important companies of the last fifty years. I don't care. Who wants to argue that with me? You know, I'll say that. And, you know, here you're sitting down with the founder who, like you said, is is writing that book that will become canon and telling the history of how the company started and, you know, sharing some great stories along the way. 
it's a book that, you know, 50 years from now, someone may pick up and read and go, hey, how'd that company Nike start? So the fact that you got to help fill with that, that's a career defining project for most people. Oh, it was it was a, a labor of love for me, because as I said, I was getting to get nuance, depth. A lot of the stories he told, I had heard of or knew roughly or I'd even heard him say before. But he's giving it in such greater depth and in so much more context that they made my job much more uh, rewarding because then I could, when I could retell the stories, I had much more to them, right? It wasn't just sort of a top line remembrance of something that happened, you know, five decades ago. It was a deep uh, recollection of his and the stories became that much more rich. And so I was, I was thrilled. And, and then when he acknowledged me in the book, which he didn't have to do, but it was obviously I really appreciated he he said the exact words I think for he thank he thanks me for deftly sifting myths from reality. <laughs> Which I was like, wow! In six words, you pretty much summed up exactly what I did because uh, it was it was in some cases a very diplomatic uh, situation, not just with me, but I had to like with Jeff Johnson. I was I was working with him because you know, Jeff was a big part of the book, and so Phil wanted me to talk to Jeff and help. Know, churn some memories there and said sometimes Jeff would have to be his memory would have to be challenged a little bit so I was like walking a tightrope sometimes going to these guys like you know what that that section he wrote that that part of that story it's not actually how it happened and then I would have to lay it out in very much a CSI Beaverton type of scenario saying no see this happened and then this happened and here's how I know this and here's why this happened and as I said almost every time I did that Phil would pause and look a little pensive and he'd say no no you're right you're right that is what happened you know, and so I was very much uh, thrilled to to be able to bring that expertise because this is what my job was, right? I mean, that was I was paid to live and learn and know about Nike, Blue Ribbon Sports, and the Nike in that era. Uh, not really knowing exactly when and how this material would become valuable, but it certainly was for for helping fill fill in some of the the blanks. Again, I keep telling people because my parents never quite fully got this. I did not write any of the book. I didn't ghostwrite it. I didn't write a word in there. I <laughs> make editing suggestions. Um, it's Phil, you know? And so it was funny because every time people are like, oh, you sure? It sure sounds like you. I'm like, well, I'm very flattered because uh, Phil's an amazing writer. So if, if, if this sounds like me, then that's a very flattering thing to say. But no, it is not me, mom. Stop saying that. All right. A few minutes left. Is there ever anything that, whether it's an athlete, a coach, or you just came across it, as the historian of Nike that you came across and you were like, oh my God, this is like Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is the <laughs> artifact that we've been looking for for all of these years. And I can't believe we've unearthed this and found it again. Well, there is. It wasn't something I unearthed, but unearth is absolutely the correct uh, term. So it was the original waffle iron, which I have been asked I mean, up until its resurrection, which I'll explain in a second, I, I, up until that moment, I had been asked, I can't even tell you how many times, hey, whatever happened to that original wall? Yeah. Iron? And so I had, early in my days as a historian, I had the opportunity to actually go visit Barbara Bowerman at her place uh, where she and Bill retired in, up in Fossil, Oregon, in Central Oregon. And I asked her that. I said, Barbara, you got to tell me. I get asked this all the time. What happened to the original wall? Iron? And she just laughed and she said, oh, I threw it away. Oh and I said, why would you throw it away? And she said, because Bill didn't put a, a, a releasing agent on the waffle iron when he put the, the, the all of his chemicals in there to make the first pattern. So it stuck together. It was basically welded together uh, inside. It was worthless. So I threw it away. 
and she cackled and thought that was the funniest story. You know, and it is funny, but I was like, oh man, God, I'd kill to have that waffle iron. So, fast, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I'm at my desk, I get a phone call, and it's a member of the Bowerman family. Uh, and I said, hello. And she starts explaining who she is and why she's calling. And I said, wait a minute, you, what now? Yeah, I mean, I, I, she said it, and I was sort of just, I didn't even register it. And so I said, can you, can you back up? And she said, yes, Tom Bowerman, who was one of the Bowerman's, uh, Bowerman Bill's uh, three, three sons. Tom lives on the, the, the area or in the house or where the uh, Bowerman's lived in Coburg, just north of uh, Eugene, essentially where Bill did a lot of his early tinkering with, with early Nike shoes. And he was expanding the carport. And he noticed that the ground next to the foundation where the rain carport was, was kind of mushy. So he wanted to dig it out so he could fill it and make sure they could pour concrete over the top. So he gets a small backhoe and he's, he's, cut, he's digging down into the ground and he lifts it up and dumps it and out fall a bunch of old shoes, metal plates, and all sorts of other things. And, and what appears to be a rather old, rusty wobbler. So they talked among the family and they realized what had happened. This was where the family had buried their trash because they lived way up on a, on a, on a mountain. They, they had like switchbacks to get up there to drive. A, a, a garbage truck could never get up there. Never occurred to me to ask Barbara when she said she threw it away. Hey, Barbara, any chance you threw it away in a rubbish heap in your backyard that you buried and covered with dirt and that the waffle iron might still be there? Because that's where it was. It oh was, my gosh. Uh, it was buried. Once they would fill up a, a, a rubbish pit, they would put dirt over the top and dig another one. And so in 1971-ish or whenever that pit was filled, they the waffle iron and everything else that Bill was tinkering with were uh, covered up with dirt and forgotten about. And that dirt, thankfully, helped keep the air out. And so that kept everything from oxidizing too much and it didn't really uh, completely deteriorate. So when it was unearthed in, in 2010, early 2011, there they were. And so I got that call and, I, and so she basically said, we have the original waffle iron. And I was, I was just like, I was stunned. I mean, I was like, you, 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 what, how can you have the original waffle iron? And then she told me where it had been. I'm like, how is that possible? And sure, uh, Barbara had uh, authenticated that before she passed away in the interim and Barbara had authenticated that, that was the original. And then based on the, when we, when we did get it from the Barman family, uh, not only the waffle iron, but also the, the other prototypes and other things that Bill had been working on, uh, we were able to then piece together roughly what it had looked like. Also knowing that we didn't know it was a, a wedding present. So uh, the replicas that we had been using were all from like the 60s and, and 70s and turned out that this particular waffle iron had an art deco pattern and it was from 19, the early 1930s when the Barnes got married. So we were able to essentially do a little sleuthing and figure out what, it, the, what the waffle iron looked like before it was destroyed so now we have a, almost an exact replica of the original waffle iron as well as the original waffle iron so to me i didn't do anything to do it i answered the phone right so i didn't i didn't actually dig anything up but i was i was just i was just beside myself so I, I hung out the phone and got oh my god oh my god oh my god we found the original waffle iron and my <laughs> staff was like you what you know it was just it was a crazy story so you're like historian but also csi forensic investigator now too <laughs> Because you, yes. you had to determine that waffle iron that was buried in the earth was, in fact, the first waffle iron that created the first uh, Nike shoes. Absolutely. Wow. I mean, it was the best. I mean, you can't, we didn't have a lot of 
no pun intended, DNA to work with. But right. it, it was, why would we doubt Barbara and her family? You know, they would have known that that would have been, and who would go to the point of trying to mock up a, a crappy old waffle iron that had been, you know, dilapidated for 40 years just to try to sell it to us. They didn't even, try, they didn't even sell it to us. We ended up donating money to a, a, a track program that they were trying to resurrect in Central Oregon. And in exchange, they they just basically gave us all the materials that were found in, in that rubbish pit, and they're now they're all in the archives, and, and it's amazing. I mean, it's like it's absolutely amazing. The only my only regret is that a lot of those prototypes they're very strange. They're very uh, you know you just look at it like what was Bill thinking? And my regret is, of course, that I can't ask Bill what were you thinking because he had passed away in 1999, and we didn't uh, we didn't know this the little treasure trove existed back then. All right, we're going to end with this. We've talked about the past and the history of Nike, the future of Nike. We just talked earlier in the conversation about how big the campus has become. Uh, I've had Mike Hackman and others from Nike on this show. We've talked about things are being sold in the e-commerce much more than walking into a Nike town like it used to be. Athletes are not being signed at the rate that they used to be because it's the rare, unique uh, elite athlete who's been signed by any of the shoe companies anymore. The heritage of Nike and the future of Nike, when it's kind of at an arm's length where, again, you may not walk into a store and try on shoes. You may be more interested in designing your own shoes online and ordering them and having them arrive at your door in three days. What's the future of Nike as far as you see? Oh, you know, there's, I've been recent, recently watching some of the news of the stories of the whole metaverse, you know, the, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I gotta be honest, like you probably should have my 26 year old son on your old intern Mitch to talk yeah, about Yeah, exactly. Because my eyes glaze over, you know, and he thinks, he thinks esports and that whole, where we're Nike's going is, is, is the next big thing. And, and I'm like, I hope you're right, Mitch, because I don't understand like 95% of it. Um, but you know, I, I don't, I don't really know to, to be honest. And I, I've been amazed considering the, uh, the numbers that they've generated throughout the COVID, uh, almost two years now. I mean, the, the sales have been pretty amazing. The, the investment that was done in e-commerce, uh, has obviously paid off. So, you know, and, and poor John Donahoe, the new CEO, and he's not really new anymore. It's almost two years now, but he's really been CEO almost entirely of, covid era nike right? yeah so, that's not great timing no it's not but the company is still doing pretty well all things considered so where can he take it when there isn't the the supply chain problems and the the you know workers getting ill in china and vietnam and shutting down factories and shut you know what what, what will happen when we go back to whatever the normal will be <laughs> assuming we ever get past uh the various COVID variants, I, I'm pretty excited about where things could be going. I just, uh, my crystal ball is kind of hazy. You know, the company will reach 50 in May. On May 1st, it'll be reach its 50th anniversary. And, you know, we were doing, I, before I left, there was a lot of uh, story kicking around, you know, what would we do? And and I can tell you that the the focus was certainly drawing from the past and, and celebrating the past, but it was all about and how will this be relevant to the future? And how will this uh, manifest itself in you know five, 10, 20, 40 years? And I've always loved that about Nike. They they respect the past, they they draw from it, uh, they they leverage it in a lot of ways, but they're not dwelling in it. And I think that's a big plus for the company that they they just like they find ways to activate it 
and bring it into the future. And that's what I'm looking forward to seeing. I, I you know, I left a few suggestions before I left, but obviously once you go out the door, your your opinion no longer matters. So I'm just I'm curious to know where Nike, uh, how it celebrates its 50th, and then where and what uh, st- what is the first big step into this next 50 years. Scott Reams, Nike historian emeritus, good friend of mine for a long time. You had a great run at Nike. Congratulations on that. What great stories you shared today. Thanks so much for joining me on Sports Business Radio and best of success in retirement. I'm sure you'll find some special projects to work on, but it's nice to uh, just kind of ride off into the sunset. (laughs) I'd like to play golf, but I need to be a skosh warmer and a little less wet. I need that extra bounce. I hear Uh, that. When the ball hits and it goes thwack and it just basically stops, that doesn't help my game at all. Yeah. You and me both. All right, Scott Reams, you're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Brian Berger here. In addition to hosting Sports Business Radio, I'm also the co-founder of the consulting firm Everything is on the Record. Since 2007, we've been working with CEOs, corporate spokespeople, pro sports team owners, athletic directors, elite athletes, and coaches to help them navigate the tricky media and social media landscape. My business partner is Rick Buecher of Fox Sports. As part of a new partnership with e-learning platform Open Sesame, we are now offering many of our teachings via on-demand courses available on video. Courses include presenting your best self in a video meeting. Your personal brand is connected to your employer's brand pause before you post, text, and email, and scrubbing your social media. To take any of our insightful video courses on demand, visit opensesame.com and type in the words, everything is on the record in the search. That's opensesame.com. To learn more about how we can provide a customized training session for your organization, visit everythingisontherecord.com. That's everythingisontherecord.com. Now, back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is Keith Cosero. He is with NFL Films, a senior coordinating producer. He's been one of the producers on Hard Knocks with the Indianapolis Colts on HBO and HBO Max. And he does a lot of other work for NFL Films, and we're happy to have him on Sports Business Radio. Keith, thanks for joining me. How are you? Great to be with you, Brian. Thank you for for having me. And uh, on behalf of everybody at NFL Films, uh, thanks for talking to us. Let's start with Hard Knocks and the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, As we record this, we now know that the Colts have been eliminated from the playoffs. I've been watching. It's very compelling, especially as the team tries to navigate through all the COVID protocols. But uh, I would imagine the last episode of the season, the finale coming up on Wednesday is going to be pretty darn compelling with the loss to Vegas and then the loss to Jacksonville as a 16 point favorite. Uh, That's some drama. It is. It's not the drama we were all hoping for. It's not the drama we expected, but uh, that's always been the deal with hard knocks. You're as, as our, our former, our late beloved leader, used to say hard knocks you're building the plane mid-flight yeah (laughs) and uh in this case unfortunately the plane is burning and uh now we gotta land it um but it it, you know you don't know what you're getting into because the show is whatever happens that week and and this week unfortunately did not go the way the colts wanted it to go 
HBO has done Hard Knocks and NFL Films Hard Knocks for many, many years, but this is the first time that Hard Knocks has ever been done in season. And again, it's with the Indianapolis Colts. What's that experience been like? And what are some of the challenges that come with doing something in season versus preseason? First of all, uh, you know, we are so grateful to the Indianapolis Colts for taking this leap with us. And of course, our incredible partners at HBO, who we've had, you know, our the relationship between NFL films and HBO goes back four decades now since we started doing inside the NFL with them. And it's uh it we've been doing hard knocks for 20 years. It's a show that uh we obviously hold very dear. And we never knew if this was going to be an opportunity that would ever come uh, doing an in-season hard knocks. And to have it happen and to have it work out the way it has, uh, it's just something we're really grateful for. It's been a privilege to produce the show. Um, we're, we're thrilled with how it's come out. I think, I think in a lot of ways, it's been, it's been interesting to see people discover it because not a lot of people – like it just, it sort of came in quietly. The Colts weren't a team anybody was talking about in the middle of the season. And then the show started and they got hot. And then I think people started to see the show and realize, hey, this is the real deal. This is actually hard knocks. They're, they've got the goods and the Colts have opened their doors and, and they're a tremendous group of people uh, led by Jim Irsay, uh and his daughters, Carly and Kalen and Frank Reich and Chris Ballard, an unbelievable group of players. Um, who have been open and just a bunch of good people. It's, it's been a, it's been a kind of a delight to tell a story about them. And, uh, um, and as it's gone on and they got hot and became kind of the talk of the NFL, like the show just picked up a lot of steam. And I think anybody who's watched it has had a positive response to it. Um, I think HBO's happy with it. We're thrilled with it. The Colts have been thrilled with it. And, uh, you know, obviously it's something we'd, we'd like to continue doing, but, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. That was going to be my next question is since this was year one of an in season hard knocks, is this something that you hope to continue in the future? For sure. Um, I, I, I think it, it's gone better than any of us could have anticipated, uh, in terms of the product, in terms of the cooperation from the club. Um, in, in terms of the response, uh, in a lot of ways, it, it reminded me of the year, the first time we did the Bengals, 2009. That was the time, that was a moment where I felt like, and we felt like the people producing the show, that we were clicking on all cylinders and we had kind of cracked the the code a little bit. We, we rebooted the series in 2007 with the Kansas city chiefs 2008. We did the Cowboys. And I think in some ways that season missed the mark a little bit. Wade Phillips was the coach that season. They had TO. There were some great things about it. It didn't quite land the Bengals one with Chad, uh, Chad Ochocinco and Carson Palmer and Marvin Lewis. We felt like we've hit our stride. Like we, we, we kind of figured this thing out and it, that was the first time the series won the Emmy for best sports series. <clears throat> and then the following year, but, but it wasn't getting a lot of buzz. It kind of flew under the radar. 
anybody who watched it thought, well, this is really good. But not a lot of people really watched it because the Bengals didn't have a huge national profile. Um, it, it obviously raised their profile and turned Chad Johnson into an even bigger star. The next year was the year we did the Jets with Rex Ryan. I remember that one and the holdout uh, yeah. with, uh, with Revis. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think that was the moment where the show just blew up. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, all, all of a sudden we were on the back page of the New York post and the NFL films. We'd been around a long time, but we'd never been on the back page of the New York post. And Rex was obviously a TV star and it just was a tremendous confluence. We were, we were cl- clicking on all cylinders. The show was amazing. Rex was a star and, and it became a huge hit and, and sort of a something that crossed over into pop culture in a way that, that, that was really fun to be part of. And then the shows continued to be great through the years. There's been other tremendous seasons and seasons with the, the Houston Texans, the season we did uh, with them with Bill O'Brien and JJ Watt was was phenomenal and, and and the series has won 18 20 emmys whatever and but but to get here and to do this this one season this reminded me of most was was that bengal season because it feels like all right i think we we know how to do this and next year people are going to go oh you got to watch this this is this show it it's really good so uh, you know, hopefully a team agrees to do it next year and we get another opportunity, another bite at this apple. And it goes on for 20 more years because we loved producing it. Um, you know, we'll see how this last episode turns out, but it's, it, like I said, it's been a thrill and it's been a privilege. Keith, take us behind the scenes a little bit. Uh, you shoot a ton of video throughout the week. When do you edit it? How many cameras do you have typically for this in-season Indianapolis Colts hard knocks? Give us a little bit of feel for what that looks like. Well, we shoot, it's a smaller footprint than the summer show. Um, Just by, by virtue, you know, we don't ever want to be a disruption and a distraction, but to make the summer show great, you need a big, you need a lot of people. You need to mic up everybody and their cousin at practice to get because there's not as much going on right you know? the, the stakes are a little lower and the stakes really for that series and that show are around the rookies trying to make the team the stars are are, are mainly trying to to get in shape and not get injured before week one right so you get a great sense of guys like um Dak prescott and zeke elliott you know from this past season with dallas but there's nothing really at stake for them in August. Uh, so, so it's more of a personality profile for them. Um, so we, we throw everything we have at it in the in season version. And we learned this doing uh, all or nothing for five seasons with, with Amazon. That's I think where we, we really f- kind of figured out how to do this. If, it, if we had done this without doing all or nothing, I don't know that we would have known how to do it. But having done that for five years, we, we, we kind of, we figured it out. So we were able to hit the ground running this time. We knew what we needed. We needed to get the cameras in the meeting rooms, uh, the unmanned cameras that we use to, to, to capture all the meetings so that the team can conduct its business without having a camera in its face all the time or a camera crew in their presence. So you've got 
cameras mounted on the walls. So we are, you know, an actual fly on the wall. Mm-hmm. And then there's <laughs> a couple camera crews there shooting every practice. We mic up three or four people at every practice during the season. We shoot every meeting. Um, we go off the field with, with the players and the coaches, three, four shoots a week. Um, so we shoot, you know, probably a hundred to two hour, 200 hours per episode. We mic up six to eight people at every game plus families, uh, in the stands. Um, so there's just, there, there's still an enormous amount of coverage to make one hour of television. Um, and, and, you know, cause you don't know what's going to happen. You got to shoot a lot. You don't know who's going to be. What's interesting is you don't know who the star of an episode is until the game is played on Sunday. Right. So a lot of times we're, we're retrofitting when a player has a great game. Well, we got to make sure this guy's in the first half of the episode so that, you know, it's just as storytellers, you want to build a, a story with a structure that, that the audience can connect with and, and you can set things up and deliver them in the game, which, which gives us so many natural payoffs that, as a storyteller, you really look forward to this kind of, uh, of opportunity every episode. Before we move on from Hard Knocks, one of the mo- more compelling moments, I thought, of the Indianapolis Colts Hard Knocks season is when you guys got the footage of Carson Wentz taking his COVID test, and then he tests positive. You can see his disappointment. You see the word spreads throughout the building, and all of a sudden they've got to change their game plan and everything for the Las Vegas Raiders. And then lo and behold, on Sunday, after practicing all week with the backup quarterback, Carson Wentz was able to play. But you could just feel the tension in the episode and in the building of, oh my gosh, our starting quarterback is down. We don't really have a great option for backup. And what does that mean for us to have to pivot with our game plan? See, this is a good question. I'm curious to, to, to hear how you responded watching the episode because we're, I don't know if you saw that game on Sunday against the Raiders and knew that Carson played by the time you watched the episode or not, but it was a big debate for us was do you present it as a TikTok and assume the audience doesn't know what happened or do you assume that the audience does? And, and in Hard Knocks, one of the things we talk about is presenting the story in real time as it unfolds. So the narrator, Liev Schreiber, always narrates in the present tense. We don't recap games, games unfold. And so last week, there was so much happening with the COVID situation. They had an outbreak. CDC changed its rules on Monday afternoon. Then the NFL changed its rules. Then Carson tested positive. They had other guys who were out. They were coming back. Things were happening each day that changed the whole situation on the fly. And we decided to present it as such. And I'm curious, you as a viewer, did you appreciate that? Or did you feel like you already knew and we were, we were maybe, maybe went a step too far. I'm curious what your, what your reaction was as a, as a viewer. I mean, I already knew, but I appreciated those bases being covered in the episode, right? Like if you don't cover those bases, I feel like you're just kind of skipping ahead to the conclusion. And frankly, the, the secret sauce behind hard knocks, as far as I'm concerned is seeing the process play out. Right. So, Oh my gosh, uh, Frank Wright goes in and tells the running back coach that, 
hey, guess what? Carson Wentz just tested positive, and then you can see the coaches meeting, and then you see, you know, Sam, the backup quarterback, Erlinger, has got to get ready, and he's taken, you know, QB1 snaps for the week. And I, I thought the way you presented it was great, and then, you know, you see like, okay, you didn't expect he was going to play quarterback against the Raiders, and you think this gives them the best chance to win, and they still ended up losing, which to me, you know, if you're really in the business like we are, you know that practice does matter and that he didn't take snaps all week. And that probably hurt him in that game against uh, the Raiders. So, you know, there, I, there's a reason why maybe they lost that game. I think you're dead on. I think I think you said it right. It is a process show. You're showing the process by which this group of people prepares, plays. Yep deals with adversity, overcomes obstacles, and tries to achieve a goal. It's a group of people trying to accomplish something together. And the show is the process of how they how they try to reach their objective. And if you watched that Raiders game live, you just saw a team that was out of sync. Yep. And and looked a step looked a little sluggish. Looked like, boy, looks like half the team is sick or was sick this week, you know, the quarterback might've been sitting in his house all week doing meetings by zoom, you know, instead of practicing. And that's exactly what happened. Well, and that's why, but frankly, yeah. I, I'm more excited about the season finale than any of the other episodes, because the way the season ended and laying an egg against the Jaguars, no offense against the Jaguars, but when you're a 16 point favorite and you're playing to get into the playoffs and you lose that game, I really am interested in seeing how this all wraps up. I will tell you this, having seen, you know, usually as we speak on, you know, I'm aware of what we captured this week. I've seen the rough cuts as we, you know, we're, we're putting together the show now. Um, tonight I'll see the first cut of it and we'll, we'll make all of our changes and nothing could have been more shocking than, than what we saw in that game in Jacksonville. Yeah. It, it, the nothing in their preparation this week suggested that this was going to be the outcome. Yeah. Uh, nothing. The only things that did were that they had it, they had a real injury one of those under the radar injuries, Xavier Rhodes, their their best corner, their best outside corner, was out, um, and and DeForest Buckner, their best, their all pro defensive tackle, was was dealing with some knee soreness and didn't didn't practice all week. Um, and those are those are those are real injuries. Um, and and then early in this game against Jacksonville. Rocky Sin, one of the other corners, went out. And that was a bit of an uh-oh moment. Like that felt like a harbinger. That that that's not an injury they could afford to have, given that they were already down a corner. And those are the kinds of things that happen in NFL games that we don't talk about much. We point at the head coach, we point at the quarterback, and we say, and we blame them for screwing up, right? That's what we do as fans. But football is such an intricate game with so many pieces on the on the chessboard, so to speak, that you, you can't just lose two of your top three corners and hope that everything's going to be all right, you know? And so again, like you said, I think this episode will show that there maybe were some signs that, that they could be in trouble, 
but there was nothing in their preparation like there was last week with all the COVID distractions um, and health issues um, that would have suggested that what happened in Jacksonville was going to happen. Before I let you go, I know you've got uh, an announcement of a new project that's coming up on HBO. Tell us about that. Right. We did in August of 2021. Um, I went to Branson, Missouri with a, with the NFL films crew for 10 days where we spent that those 10 days with Terry Bradshaw, who was performing a series of live shows. Terry Bradshaw does a live show with a band and he tells stories of, about his life and sings songs, um, kind of a rockabilly sound with a band that backs a really good band. And we said, let's make a movie about Terry framed around this week in Branson. Um, and what we made um, is a 75 minute film, a special that's a first person account by Terry Bradshaw of his extraordinary unique life. I don't, I don't think there's anybody in sports or, or American culture like Terry Bradshaw has been in our lives for 50 years. Um, he's had a lot of ups and a lot of downs, many of them public. Um, he's honest in a way that very few sports figures are, and he is an absolutely gifted and extraordinary storyteller and entertainer. So what we did is we, while we were there, we sat down in the, in the dressing room and did multiple interviews with him before the shows. So we spent about five hours interviewing him backstage. We shot four performances in Branson with multiple cameras, the, the whole, the whole NFL films experience. And uh, I think what we've come out with is a, is a, is a unique film that we're really excited to share with the world. And it's going to premiere on HBO on February 1st and, uh, and then and stream on HBO max. And, and again, you know, such a wonderful partnership with HBO. We make, we make, we make films with just about everybody in the business. So we're, we're very excited um, about what's ahead as we, as we get to the Super Bowl. January is a, always a special month at NFL films. Um, and, you know, we do our best work this time of year. We love to document the playoffs. We will have s about 70 plus cameras shooting the games next weekend, super wildcard weekend with wires, players and coaches mic'd up on every sideline in all six games. Uh, we live for this time of year. We write our composer, David Robodeau, the greatest music composer, who's ever been in sports television writes his new music for every January. It premieres at our show road to the super bowl that, that airs on super bowl Sunday. So there's always a fresh score from Dave Robito where you get the big, the big goosebump yeah. producing NFL films music. So That's it's great. This is the best time of year for us. We, we live for this and, and we're excited. I wish we could have done a few more episodes of, of hard knocks. Uh, we were really excited about that, but I think we'll have a really special finale here this week, and uh, and then we'll move on to the rest of uh, January and the Super Bowl. 
Keith Cosrow, NFL film senior coordinating producer, also works on HBO's Hard Knocks, the first one in season with the Indianapolis Colts. The season finale is on Wednesday night on HBO and HBO Max. Keith, thanks so much for joining me on Sports Business Radio. Enjoy this conversation. Best of luck with you through the playoffs and the Super Bowl, and I hope we can catch up again. Okay, thank you, Brian. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at molkasports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A sports.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions. GriggsProductions.com.